We're up to as far as Psalm 14, and it's kind of interesting. We're dealing with some people we know here tonight in our society, in our world, is, is uh, prevalent right now. And uh, we'll get into that. But let's just read through it. I'll come back and do a few word studies and see what the Lord has. So, Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Well, they are corrupt, and they've done abominable works. And there's none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. All uh, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. It's a prophetic psalm, but it's also an observation psalm. David's looking around uh, at uh, those around him. You know, you might think uh, that those that believe there is no God is something new, and maybe they, you know, you see the signs all over. Uh, I trust science, you know, and what they're basically saying is, in fact, I think that main ad campaign was put out by um, uh, people for the freedom of from religion or something like that, uh, whatever that organization is called. But three points uh, here, three uh, individuals, or I should say groups of people that are being talked about. Number one, the fool, which is going to be an interesting study. The workers of iniquity, and then God's people. So David, by the Holy Spirit, never forgets the poor and uh, is always the defender of Israel. As he's going through these Psalms, you see it often. And uh, knowing that God is seated on his throne in Zion, and will judge the nations from there. But where did David find those that say there is no God? You know, you think about it, and I'm studying through this, trying to say, well, where is David running into these types of guys? He's in Israel, and even if not, all the other surrounding nations had gods, but, uh, you know, some type or another. But the one true God, there are many that did not uh, consider the one true God of Israel to be a God at all. But if you look up the word fool, it is the word nabal. And it's the Hebrew word. The first use of this word is in the Song of Moses, and that's in Deuteronomy 32. You don't need to turn there, but Moses recounts for all the earth to hear uh, the works of Almighty God. He calls him the rock. In verse 4, whose way is perfect, just, righteous, who is the God of faithfulness without any injustice, and in verse 6 and 7, but man fails in the Song of Moses and, and acts corruptly towards God. And it says they are foolish, same word, and unwise toward the very God that establishes them forever. They're foolish. And these are the nations he's talking about, uh, mankind. But then he goes on to say, you know, well, he says they're foolish because they deny God, who in verse 8 separated the nations and gave them boundaries, and set the land of Israel according to the number of sons of Israel as well. And then it goes on in verse 9 to say, For the Lord's portion is his people, 
Jacob is his inheritance. And so God chose out of the, uh, all of humanity and set aside nations, divided up, and put the borders where he put them. And they've been moving all over the place since, but you know that's all of, according to his hand as well. But when it comes to Israel, that's his inheritance. Those are his people. That's his uh, established people, the land of Israel where it is, and gave them boundaries. And he did it according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. So, But they forgot God also. In verse 21, back in uh, Deuteronomy 32, God provoked, um, they provoked God by forgetting about him. And so God provokes them with another people that don't even believe in God, and he calls them a foolish nation. And so this word foolish, same one that David uses, he calls them that because they're forgetting the God that delivered them out of bondage. bondage. And so for you and I, it's foolish for us to be delivered out of the sin that we were bound to, our lifestyles that we had no strength or power of ourselves to give up. And, and the Lord did it. He had the strength. That's our testimony. These are the wonderful things that he did in our lives to take from us and uh, create in us a, a new, and um, that we're born again and we no longer have to live after the flesh. And we sure we stumble, but we don't have to. And the, we, we now live after the Spirit, and we're able to, whereas we weren't before. This is what God has done in us. And so to forget that, that's where we came from, is foolishness. But it's not just foolishness like a carnival clown or foolishness like the, the two extra cards in your you know, deck of cards. It's not that type of a thing. It's a foolishness that's serious. It's one that denies God. It's one that has a, a fool aspect of just being godless and they don't have any concern or they truly begin to tell themselves like he says they have to say to their own hearts there is no god so david ran into another guy and he does have a a, a, basically a story to be told about this if you want to go back to first samuel 25 the word for fool there in psalm 14 is nabal well as it turns out there's a character named nabal that David ran into. He had been uh, running from Saul, and this is shortly after Saul and David had, had uh, met in the valley, or in the, the caves of En Gedi. And if you remember, Saul was asleep, and David ran down and, and snuck in and took his sword and cut off a piece of his garment, and then goes back up and starts waking him up and telling him what's going on. Well, they made their little peace. Well, shortly after that, Samuel died in, in the first part of chapter 25. And uh, so all of Israel mourned and came together. But David started to see how Saul was starting to get his ire up again. And so David goes and wanders some more into uh, the desert around the area. We can pick it up in uh, verse 2 of Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 25. And so there, there were, uh, now there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and a beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh, or a hard guy to deal with, um, and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. But uh, nevertheless, this particular guy, descendant of Caleb, was a hard-nosed guy and, and Basically, the word means he was nearly impossible to deal with. And um, when David heard, 
in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, well, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in the, my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Well, peace be to you, peace to your house, and peace to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers and your shepherds are, were with us. And you get a little more of the story why David's free to do this as we read on here. Now, your shepherds were with us, and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were at Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a, um, on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So David basically is greeting him, sending his guys. He knows it's a feast day. There's a, a feast going on in Israel. There, there's a, a, a slaughter going on. They're shearing the sheep also. And so Nabal's basically you know, gathering up some big profit. He's, he's got plenty, and everybody knows it, and he knows it. And so here comes David and says, you know, we've been uh, watching over your guys a little bit, and we'll get a little more of a testimony on that. And he says, well, ask your young men, or where was I? Um, so when, verse 9, so when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all the words that the name of David, in the name of David, and waited. Well, then Nabal answered David's servants and said, well, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from his master. So he knew the story of David and that he'd been breaking away from Saul, and he knew that there was some, some issues there, and he didn't have any regard for it one way or another. And what you're kind of getting here, not to give too much away, but he didn't think anything of what God was doing in Israel. He didn't think anything of what God was doing in his own life. You know, he gathered everything to himself and thought it was his own. And Nabal answered David's servants, So surely... Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? Well, so David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told them all these words. You know, these guys knew David, his, his young men did. You can kind of get that picture where, oh, okay. And they slowly turn on their heels. You ever seen, seen anybody do that? You know, all right, that's the way it's going to be. And so David said to the, his men, Every man girded his sword. So every man girded his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. And now one of the young men told Abigail, one of Nabal's young men told Abigail, his wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we were accompanying them. Uh, they were, uh, when they were in the fields, they were a wall to us, both by night and by day. I mean, these guys felt safe because of David's guys being there. And they are telling Abigail about this. And um, so they were a wall to us, both by night and day, all the time we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider that you will do for harm, or what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel, and no one can speak to him. This is Nabal. Well, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread and two skins of wine and five sheep already dressed, five sheaths of roasted grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on the donkeys. And she said to her servants, Go on before me. See, I am coming after you. And so it was, as she rode on the donkey, that she went down under cover of the hill 
And there were David and his men coming towards her, and she met them. Well, now David had said, Surely in vain I have protected all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belongs to him, and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so, and more also, to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. And now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, bowed down to the ground. And so she fell at his feet and said, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And be, but I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you have sent. Uh, she's a keeper. I mean, she still is trying to defend her husband, but uh, she is at the same time acknowledging that uh, he's blown it and wants to make it right if she can. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed, from avenging yourselves with your own hand, and now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And the story goes on. She, uh, David relents. She brought all those things. And she goes back, and that night there was a party going on. Nabal was drunk, and she wasn't going to tell him anything then. Next morning he wakes up, and his head is clear. And she says, you know, last night David was on his way to take your life and every single man among you. And his heart, it says, he turned completely to stone or to completely still. He froze. And his heart says, what does it say? It, it died within him, and yet he was there for a while. But the, the following day, by the time the day was done, he had, he had died and all. So um, that is the story of Nabal, a fool. Well, he didn't have any regard for what the Lord was doing in the land of Israel. Everybody knew that, that David was the one who'd killed Goliath. Everybody knew that David was a man who Saul was pursuing, but he was not a criminal. And uh, so he basically ignored what God was clearly doing. In fact, he calls him son of Jesse, and you know he knew that. He, David never said anything to him, I'm the son of Jesse. But all that to say this, David was again on the run. You know, Samuel died. And uh, being such, he ran into this guy Nabal. If, he, if such a guy like Nabal would act that way, you know, can you think that he feared God or believed God in his heart? Another an example of a fool, same word used in this particular case, is in the book of Job. And back towards Psalms, maybe this one we can go to, just Job chapter 1. And, uh, and you all know the story of Job. He's a godly man, feared God, whom God had blessed with many children and great wealth, many animals. But he was also known for great generosity, and he was one who would look out for the poor. He always saw to the needs of the poor. But as you know the story, Job was tested, lost all of his children, lost all of his wealth, and in chapter 2 was smitten in his own flesh with terrible sores and suffered greatly. But notice in verse 10 of chapter 2, some, some insight here into what is that word, what that word means, that word fool. Verse 10, it says, or let's back up a little bit. Um, verse 9, Then his wife now said to him, You still hold fast to your, your integrity? Well, curse God and die. 
But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Same thing, fool. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all the, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Well, we identify what he's talking about here as a fool. Somebody who says, you know, curse God. God doesn't mean anything. He's, there's nothing, you know, why wouldn't you? Uh, it's only a fool would consider God as nothing, is what is being said here. And in the end, you know, God did restore and bless Job. And he lived to an old age. He had kids, he had animals again. There are also many Proverbs that deal with fools. My favorite one, if you want to turn, is Proverbs 26. Because it just is such a perfect little piece of wisdom about fools. Um, Psalm, or Proverbs 26, just 4 and 5. And I'm, I'm going somewhere with all this, so hang on. Um, again, a fool is not just a clown. A fool is a very serious problem uh, when it comes to the Lord and how they consider the Lord. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, well, lest you be like him. But answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You know, that's the thing about a fool. You'd stand there and you don't know what to do. He's, he's mocking God. Uh, do I answer this guy? Well, then, I, you know, he's going to think I'm part of his thing. And, or do I, I better answer him because he's going to think he's got the better of me. You know, and so it's one of those things where you deal with these people and we're going to see what David's talking about actually is a fool. And um, so uh, one more, and this one gives some insight into those who consider themselves religious and yet are fools. And that's Ezekiel 13. And some that you might even be familiar with. Some that from time to time we run across, maybe we hear some teaching. Or maybe we hear some, uh, who knows, might even be a Christian song or some other thing. They, they believe they're of the faith. They believe they're religious. But look in, in, in uh, Ezekiel 13. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel, the religious, who prophesy and say to those who prophesied of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. So are they getting anything from the Lord? Well, no, they're, this is, they're making it up. They're, they're digging around trying to see what they can come up with in their own heart. And he says, uh, you know, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. They didn't get anything from the Lord. They're, you know, there's times when you just maybe ought to shut up, keep your mouth closed. You know, no matter what, it seems like it's, there's too much dead air. Well, you know, we got to jump in and say something. Well, maybe just there needs to be dead air better than to say something out of your own rather than something that the Lord gave you to say. I mean, there's, there's so much that can go wrong when we try making things up out of our own hearts. It's their own spirit, nothing from God. They don't believe. If they did, they'd wait on God because they believe he would come through, you know, and say something then. Now, going on to Jesus in um, uh, Luke. You don't have to turn there. You can head over to Ephesians 5, and I'll work my way up. But who did Jesus name as fools? 
And I know what verse you're all thinking about, and we'll get there. Um, Luke 11, 39 and 40, the religious Pharisees that were legalistic about outward cleansing, but were full on the inside of robbery, it says, extortion and wickedness. They would abuse the word of God to put people in the bondage of legalism. They, remember, they followed Paul around everywhere he went, and they tried to run him out of town. And uh, as Paul was spreading the gospel, well, Jesus said, uh, they're fools. Do you know anybody like that? Wants to bring you under legalism? Wants to have to do a certain particular thing legally? Why? You know, uh, Certainly we don't want to be walking in sin. That's just sin. But to, to perform some ritual that somehow is, uh, brings you into some uh, legalism and bondage, you know people like that? Well, to Jesus, they're fools. And that's a serious thing, not just, not just funny. No, they're, they're dangerous. That's a, that's a, they don't fear the Lord. They don't respect the Lord. Luke 12, next chapter 13 through 21, the man who stored up wealth to enjoy for many years. Remember, he had little barns. He had too much for his little barns, so he built, built bigger barns. And many years. Yet his soul is required of him that night. The context is covetousness and all. What does Jesus say? Oh, foolish man, your soul is required of you this night. And, and he's talking about covetousness there through that passage. Both Paul and Peter warned of fools that would teach of that legalism. Remember, Paul was being chased around and had to warn those. But Peter also about those who would be fools because they simply denied who Jesus was. And uh, if you want now in Ephesians 5... What are we supposed to do about this? And there is something for us to consider. Um, what are we to do? Ephesians 5, just 11 through 17. And the context here is, is a Christian walk, just walking in the Lord, how we're supposed to walk, how we're supposed to live. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Well, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It's foolish to, to walk without trying to know what the Lord is having you to do. You walk in the light. You know? And so he's saying, you know, walk circumspectly. Words, think through and, and run around in, in your mind and know what, whether or not the way you're walking is of the Lord. So uh, similar uh, the context there, walking at, uh, the Christian walk and being followers of God. In First Peter, just a few pages or so to the right, if you want to turn to First Peter 2, also verses 11 through 17. Again, we're talking in the context of the foolishness and how serious it can be. So 2, 11 through 17, Beloved, I beg you, uh, as sojourners, pilgrims, we're just passing through, and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, 
having your con- conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works with they ob- observe glorify God in the day of visitation. That's part of this, the, the idea here. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. He's talking about governments and so forth. Whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do no good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of who? These foolish men, right? As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. You're just serving the Lord. You're just walking with the Lord. This isn't legalism. You're free, but don't use your freedom for, for wickedness or for, for vice, he says. As free, yet not as, uh, and, uh, not as a cloak for vice. But honor all people, love the brethren, fear God, and honor the king. What's he saying here? If we just live a godly life, or if we just do the things we know we're supposed to do as Christians, it puts to silence the fools, those that say there is no God. Remember, that's what we're talking about, the word fool that's being used here. Now here, in the Greek now, uh, when he says um, uh, fool, that's that word aphron, or aphron. uh, Basically, in the Greek, that word for fool is senseless or without reason. And so that's kind of the thing where you might think, well, it's somebody who just doesn't want to think about it. You know, he's senseless. He doesn't want to use his common sense or even just any kind of sense. And that's that one. But now Jesus, and this is a verse I'm sure you've been thinking about, Jesus warns us we're not supposed to call anybody a fool. But let's go there, Matthew 5, and that's verses 21 to 22. And you've got to look a little closer. Because I always kind of tend to cringe when I'm hearing people get all upset about whatever the case is these days. You know, they're stupid, they're ignorant, they're you know, they're in my way. They cut me off in traffic. To, you know, and they're a fool. You know, and you people tend to want to let that go. Well, you know, that's not of the Lord either. But what He's talking about, if you want to read with me, it's uh, Ephesians five. I'm sorry, Matthew five, twenty-one, twenty-two. And the context here is what's going on in the heart and what murder is. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Okay? Well, I say to you that whoever is angry, that's the first condition here, with his brother without cause. Okay? So this is something different. This is anger without cause. Shall be in danger of the judgment. Okay, that's the context. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Okay, you're going to have to go take this to talk to some people because that's not right. But whosoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Okay, but what's the context? He's angry and there's no cause. And so he's ripping on somebody just out of trying. And that word now in the Greek is moros or moros. And that's foolish, impious, and godless. So there are fools that are foolish, impious, and godless, but they are not, the Lord addresses that, but not when you're just angry at somebody and you've got, there's no cause, and you're trying to tell them that they're, basically they're going to hell because they, you're mad at them. You know, well, we all know what people say these days. Right? 
They're calling them fools. Um, and uh, you're in danger of hellfire if out of anger and without any cause, you're just calling somebody and putting them into the category of, of damnation. And that's what this word is about. And when Jesus says, don't call somebody thou fool just because you're mad at them, you know. And uh, just because, especially if there's no cause. Because you're, the word that means is not just you're a fool, it means, you know, damnation. You don't, you're godless. You're impious. You're foolish. And so that's what he's getting at. Now, but Jesus used the same word accurately to uh, describe those who are indeed fools. Matthew 7, you don't have to turn there if you want, you can, but 7.26, those that only hear his words but don't do them. He calls them fools. Um, and we know that's true. James, Book of James, you know, uh, faith without works. Um, like the man that built his house on sand is the parable Jesus is telling in, in 20, uh, verse 26. And so they think in their own heart that God's, worse is, God's word is useless. And so this is what's going on in their own hearts. He's, these guys are discounting the word of God. As it's, you know, it's useless. They're heroes only. They're not doers. It's useless. It doesn't have any purpose for me. They don't believe God. That's the truth about it. Matthew 23 is a full chapter about the Pharisees. And that's always interesting to read if you are uh, involved with religious people that um, like throwing their power around and don't know the Lord and it's got nothing to do with love, got nothing to do with the scriptures. They just like throwing their power around. That was the Pharisees, and Jesus called them out in Matthew 23. Also, again, the Pharisees that misrepresent God to the people. He calls them blind guides, hypocrites. They did not think in their own heart that God looks at the heart. Everything for them was the outward. You've got to clean up the outward. Remember what he said? You're full of dead men's bones. You know, they didn't, it was all about the outward for them. They didn't believe in God. They didn't believe that God could see the heart. It's getting back to what we're talking about in Psalm 14. Matthew 25, there's the five foolish, foolish virgins that Jesus called foolish that did not bring oil in their lamps and were left behind when the bridegroom came. Well, they weren't ready because they didn't have oil. And, you know, oil represents the Holy Spirit, right? And later on, by the end of it, Jesus says, I never knew you. They didn't have the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. And they didn't believe. So, uh, again... There's no God to them. They were the five foolish virgins, virgins that he, he didn't even know. All these are examples of fools because they say in their heart, there is no God. Okay, no God. In the Greek, you ever heard of the word uh, muse? You know, like the guy writes the song and the girl that he's writing about, that's his muse, or the artist that's painting the thing. You know, he's consumed. It's on his mind all the time. You know, this is my muse. Well, in the Greek, you put A in front of it, and that means not or no. And so that's a muse. Well, that's what amusement parks are. You go to the amusement park, so you don't have to think. You watch TV to be entertained, to be amused, because you don't want to have to think about anything. Amusement literally means to not think, in case you were wondering. <laughs> but uh, same goes for, in the Greek, no God. Well, God is deity. God is, is you know, what, what do we study, you know, 
well, some of us maybe, theology, right? Theology, the study of God, the study of things. Well, A is the no God, atheist. So that's where we get this word atheist. And I'm kind of spelling it out for you here just to, to lay it out for that and for anyone who hasn't known that. But that is literally what the word atheist means. Not that they don't believe in God. They believe there is no God. Um, and that is the same word or the same idea in the Hebrew in Psalm, uh, in Psalm 14 when David says, the fool says in his heart, atheist. The atheist. There's the atheist is a fool, and it's serious, because they're saying they're denying God. They're they're saying there is no God. There's an example that we need to see, and Dwight did this a few weeks ago, but it's been a few weeks, so we can just look at it real quick. Just four verses in Romans chapter one, um, and I know you're familiar, uh, but it's a good one to just review. Uh, Romans verses uh, one verses eighteen through twenty two. And we'll get to this in Psalm 2, talking about the wrath of God and God judging. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Keep that in mind. They suppress the truth. But how do they do it? Well, in unrighteousness. Okay, so they have the desire rather to be unrighteous than to acknowledge the truth. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them. For God has shown it to them. God showed it to them. It's not like they're supposed to go out in the woods and see the leaf and the leaf says that there's a trinity. Well, no, God says he shows it to them. So it's not just something that we should expect somebody to see from nature. A lot of people worship creation rather than the creator. But God is the one that says here that shows it to him, to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power. Wow, yeah. And God head, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, yes, they did, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts or empty, and their foolish hearts, same word, were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And again, they're not just being jokers. They're not just horsing around. This is serious. There is no God business. Um, and it is. It's uh, heaven or hell. It's uh, eternity, eternity, eternal life. Um, and it's funny. He says they made, uh, they changed the glory of incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed creatures, and so forth. It just naturally results that when you deny God, you start looking for something else to do. I got to go here. We got time. Isaiah 44. And uh, if you want to turn there, there's a few verses here. So I just want to read on through them. But the idea is it is folly. It is foolishness. It's, it's not funny, but it's foolish. Um, verses 6 through 20. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Well, let them declare it, set it in order before me, 
He's talking about telling the future in advance. He's, you know, do that. Prophesy. Let me see if it comes true. Since I, um, and who can proclaim as I do, let him declare it and set it in order before me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, what's lying ahead, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time? Have I not declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock I know, not one. Now look at what they do. Those who make an image, all of them are useless. Uh, at their precious And their precious things shall not profit. And their own witnesses, they neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a God or a mold, an image, that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed. For the workmen, they are mere men. And let them be gathered together and let them stand up, that they may fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works on the coals and fashions it with the hammers and works on the strength of his arms so that he is hungry eventually and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint putting this thing together. The craftsman stretches out his rule and marks one cubit of chalk and fashions it with a plane and marks it out with a compass and makes it like a figure of a man according to the beauty of a man and that it may remain in the house. He cuts down the cedars for himself takes the cypress, the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine in the rain, nurses it, and then it will be for man to burn, for he will take some of it, and he'll warm himself. He kindles it and bakes a little bread, and indeed he makes a god and worships it. It just becomes almost folly and almost funny, but it's so serious. And he makes a carved image and falls down to it. Burns half of it in the fire, and half it eats meat. Half he roasts or roasts, and is satisfied. He even warms himself and stays. says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, a carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it, and says, Deliver me, you are my god. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see. They don't perceive, they don't understand. Their hearts, so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart there is knowledge, or nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and I baked and bread on coals, and I've roasted meat and eaten it, and I shall make the rest of it into an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And he feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? And so he can't even tell the fact that he's just doing this thing. And so Isaiah prophesying the Lord, talking about them when they make their idols, the simplest wisdom. I mean, they would make these idols and they'd put them on carts and haul them around. If your God can't get himself around, you got the wrong God, right? (laughs) So anyway, so back to Psalm 14. There is no God. Guys like Russ Miller, Brian Young, Jay Seegert, Ken Ham, uh, not to mention A.E. Wilder-Smith. If you have never looked up A.E. Wilder-Smith, you can go to Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, and they have a a creation and science or faith and science um, uh, part of their app there. A.E. Wilder-Smith is a believer who 
the the most uh, renowned evolutionists at at uh, where was it? Uh, uh, what's the big one in in England? The big college, um, not not Cambridge, Oxford. All these big big mucky mucks at Oxford refused to talk to him because they couldn't hold up anything that would defeat his arguments. And I, I don't want to even shame it by trying to to explain it to you, but go and, and just check out those things. It's so so uh, valuable to have this knowing that science supports creation. Science supports a designer. And there's uh, the signs, like I said earlier, you see them all over. You know, science, we trust that, not some fool, what they would call a fool. Anyway, and so I would recommend that to you. But all these show that honest and objective science supports a designer, a creator, and even a young earth. Uh, go to Kem Han's uh, uh, Creation Institute. Uh, there's a fellow there, his name is um, Nathan uh, Jeanson, Dr. Nathan Jeanson. And he's got like 20 or so, 25 different videos on DNA taken from uh, cultures around the world. And he literally proves through that, and he proved to these guys who think that we're millions of years around, that you go back on the the guy's side, again, I'm, I'm not going to do it justice. I'm not a scientist. You're going to have to write it down. You're going to have to go there. Ken Ham, but uh, um, basically proving through DNA that you can only go back so far where your fathers and then your grandfathers and then it spreads out. Well, sooner or later, they must have knew each other because if you go back far enough, it'd be billions of people on the earth just, you know, a uh, thousand years ago. Well, in fact, there was far, far less people on the earth back then and they trace that back and how the DNA works and it gets back to the point where right around the flood would have been a very small small number of people and it's there the math is there and these guys look at it and they go oh, it's got to be something else it can't be that they just refuse they will not acknowledge they can't acknowledge because if they did then they'd realize there's a judge they'd realize that they have to give an account for their their actions you know, so atheists have to constantly, like David says, say to their heart. They have to constantly convince their own heart that there is no God. It's not something that they really come to on their own. It's something that they have to convince themselves of. And it's because they love their sin and are slaves to it and don't want to give it up or think about facing a righteous judge. But if they would turn to God, well, you know what they'd find, right? They'd find his love. They'd find his forgiveness. They'd see how the cross of Jesus paid for their sins, right? And they could have eternal life and not just die and be in oblivion. No, nothing at all. You know, we all serve some master, and I like the way Joe Foch puts this. He is Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, pastor there, but he, he puts it like this. We all have to serve uh, somebody, well, idolatry is a cruel master. You do all the work. We just talked about these guys. You do all the work, and you get nothing for it. Sex without commitment of a marriage is a cruel master. You leave behind broken lives, fatherless households. You spread diseases, destroy children, and you basically are reducing that which was intended for love and intimacy and faithfulness to a selfish appetite for lust. It's just gratifying your, your, your lust and your flesh. 
Drunkenness and drug abuse are cruel masters. Addiction, addiction equals slavery. I mean, that's what an addict is, is a slave. If they weren't a slave, they could quit. Um, so we all serve some master. Covetousness is a cruel master. Well, no matter how much you acquire, you always crave a little bit more. Covetousness, always wanting. But if God, if he is your Lord, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, and God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Psalm 14, verse 2. It'll go a little quicker. 2 through 4. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand. We were talking about the Lord looking from heaven earlier. And uh, are there any who understand, who seek after God? And what does it say? They have all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? The word understand there is consider, look into, have any insight, ponder, or just be wise about. Are there any who do that? Seek after. The word seek after is to look for it, inquire about, seek with care. But what's interesting is it all also has the idea of resort to. And that's why I was talking about these guys. They're, they're shown the evidence, and they can't say the word, I, I, I have to resort to that because there's the evidence. And so that is uh, what he's talking about there. There's none. Even today, when given that proof, they would rather ignore it and degrade that evidence than resort to the truth found in God. No knowledge means they see nothing and they have no perception. We read about that in Isaiah. Now it talks about David's people in, in verse 4. These guys, these workers of iniquity, they eat up God's people as they eat bread. Who's God's people? Well, or actually, it says David, my people, right? So who are David's people? Well, first of all, David's people were God's people. He served the Lord. But beginning with Adam who told all that was going to happen, or all that had happened in creation. From the, for the entire first millennium, Adam lived over 900 years. Together with Enoch, remember Enoch walked with God and was no more because God took him. Proof that there is a rapture. Proof that we will be taken up unless our bodies give up on us first. Noah, there right after the flood, a preacher of righteousness, saved up out of the flood in the ark. Then as his testimony down the line, went to Abraham. God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations, all through his descendants, to bring the Messiah, God's only son, Jesus Christ. David knew these stories. David knew these, the, everything about this. This is his, these are his people. You know, these are my people, it says. Isaac, Jacob, the descendants of Israel, to be his people and inherit the land. And David's talking about that. The prophets who are giving God's word for all to hear and now through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who, who David prophesied about, David knew that there was life to come. And uh, by the Holy Spirit, now the apostles and the disciples and all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ to this day, David by the Holy Spirit prophesied of God's anointed who would judge the earth and described how he would suffer and die in Psalm 22. It's accurate. And uh, 
he talked about forgiveness, imputed righteousness, imputing righteousness to him and, and forgetting his sin. David knew about that. He knew that there was going to be a way for forgiveness and, and righteousness, righteousness to be imputed. Well, so God's people were David's people. All these were and are a testimony to God along with everybody in this room who shares their faith. You know, we're, we're God's people. We're David's people. And the world, these guys, want to eat us up, right? Aren't they the ones that want to uh, censor us? Um, in verse, uh, uh, they want to, they you know, destroy us. They want to eat us up. And what does it say why? Well, because, again, they have done abominable works. They do not do good. They do not want to understand. They do not want to seek. God looked down from heaven. None. None want to call on the Lord. In verses 5 and 6, there they are in great fear. And they won't admit it, but there they are in great fear. In fact, you get you have to almost have pity. You almost have to, have to, have to feel grieved, not angry, when you see the smug faces. Down inside, they are full of fear, and they're bearing it somehow or another. We have to realize that, to be able to give them, uh, if the opportunity arises, a testimony, so that very possibly that fear might be overwhelming them, and they, and they decide to grab onto it. And so it's hard because we think of all the people that we want to despise that are, seem to be taking away our freedoms right now, and it's all coming out of atheism. It's all coming out of a godlessness. It's coming out of a destruction of the family all the things we talked about. And so we want to have a hostility. Well, truth is the best way to go, and love, and showing God's nature. Because truthfully, down deep inside, these guys are full of fear. As it says, uh, they are in great fear. For God is with us. God is with the generation of the righteous. In verse 5, you know, they do have that and if they're willing to acknowledge it, nevertheless, they don't eat, they don't call on the Lord. Now they also shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And now this is the 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 next group of people that David talks about. Through the Psalms, it's often you'll see him. You know, here he is talking about Nabal earlier. David's running around with, you know, five, six hundred guys, and it grew and grew, and they didn't have anything. They had nothing. They might pillage a little of this or a little of that from the Philistines or maybe run over to the Moabites or the Amorites and, and, and uh, you know, do the Lord's work in, in cleaning out the land from the Canaanites, which the Lord had commanded them to do. But all in all, David talks about being poor just about more than anybody in the Old Testament in, in the Psalms. And so David himself probably was not a very wealthy guy yet. You know, Saul was still sitting on the throne and... Uh, Here's Nabal, and we see that, but look at what David says. He says, you shame the counsel of the poor. Well, these guys, their fear, they don't know how to handle it, and they probably end up you know, just eating, drinking, being merry, and all that, but who else are David's people and God's people? You know, when it comes to the poor, these foolish atheists, and I'm not being derogatory, I'm quoting verse 1. These foolish atheists, 
will disguise themselves as benevolent social engineers. But in reality, they're just masters looking for slaves, cheap labor, cheap gratification to take and steal, just like their father, the devil, you know. And, you know, they, these can't defend themselves. They're poor. They, they, they're probably used to crying out for help and, and seldom find it and hear these people come along promising something. I know you see that in our society today. And without getting political, you see it on a whole agenda, what's going on today. And so we need to bring in what we know is the truth. And we'll get into that a little bit. And then we can... So these are David's people, the poor, and God's people. Nowadays also, we have foolish atheists that are eugenicists. And you know what that is. Uh, This very day, they're implementing sterilization and euthanasia through social programs and vaccines across the world. And especially, though, not so much what you might think about right now with us, but for decades in poor parts of India, in poor parts of the world, it's been going on a lot longer than COVID, where they have been seeking to reduce populations, sterilize people. I mean, in China, for decades, there was a law in China, you get one kid. And so because parents want, you know, sons because they're more profitable and get more done, all of a sudden, like this is about 30 years old, there are more boys than they knew what to do with. And I don't know where they found wives or how that ended up working it out, but it's, it's, uh, China has been implementing a one-child mandate. I don't know how long ago that ended or if it has ended just because of the population control um, that they wanted to have. And under the guise of what? You know, well, Mother Earth. You know, we have to protect the planet. There's not enough room on the planet for all these people. And so they're using that as the reason. And, you know, people who don't know this, Bill Gates is wonderful of a, you know, whatever you might think he is. Top of the pile when it comes to this. His parents, both parents were lawyers, chief lawyers for Planned Parenthood. That's his heritage. That's his... uh, that's where he's coming from. And so that clearly was their, their program to reduce population. So where can the poor, or anyone for that matter, turn for refuge in Psalm 14, verse 6? Well, they can turn to the Lord. The poor are the first to ask for mercy. Their pride is usually long broken if they're truly poor and without hope. And in the areas of the most poverty, the gospel is received a lot more readily. Why? Well, because the Lord is merciful. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. The Lord forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. What's our part? Well, let's bring the gospel to the poor and the hopeless. All of Scripture declares that God's heart is towards the poor. You won't find a place where it isn't other than those that end up poor because of their sin and all. And that's usually when he finds a contrite heart, a broken heart, and he does honor that, he says. But uh, to bring the gospel, you know, and you know that because if God's heart is toward the poor, if you're bringing the gospel to the poor, and we have access to that, you know, we, we work with Bastia, and we work with others, and there might be something that you're working with in this town right here, you know, God's going to be with you. 
His word is full of uh, that, his concern and his care for the poor and his eyes towards the poor. And number two, look for Jesus coming. Verse seven, he'll take us out when he returns and he puts his verse, his foot on Mount of Olives. God's anointed, his Messiah. That's what the word anointed means, uh, is Messiah. Jesus Christ will come out of Zion, but let's look at Luke 4 for closing verse 16 through 22. How do we know this is all true about the Lord, about him coming back? Luke 4, verses 16 to 22, he says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was, and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place. He went and looked for himself where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, he's the Messiah, to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to pr- proclaim liberty to the captives, and recover recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were on him, or fixed on him. And he began to say to them, plain and simple, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so all bore witness to him, marveled at the gracious words and the proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this not just Joseph's son? You know, he grew up around there. But what did he just tell him? Back in Psalm uh, 14, I'll just read it. What did he just tell him? Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, and Israel be glad. Amen. Why don't we stand up and pray? Ah, Lord, thank you for your word again, and we pray that uh, you would just use this. Lord, we do pray that you'd provide opportunities for us both to uh, find those ways we can share what you've done in our lives, whether we're evangelists or not, Lord, we just pray that you'd give the opportunity for us to share our testimonies. And Lord, pray that you give us opportunities to minister to the poor and give them the gospel. And Lord, we also just ask that your word would just bear fruit in our lives, that as we walk with you and live a godly life, put to silence the foolishness of those that say there is no God. And we just pray that you'd be working that in us. We can't do it on our own. There's nothing in us that's any any good it's all you you get all the glory and we want to be with you so soon lord we can't wait to have our our new bodies and our our uh, you know free from sin lord have no remembrance of the wickedness that was and to be with you in your kingdom so we ask lord please come quickly in the meantime pray that you'd bring in a harvest to that last one that you want to bring to yourself So we do again lift up Bastia. Please have your hand protecting on him and his family and his fellowship and the believers there in in Haiti. And I pray that you would change that society to something that has order and, and respects law and order, Father. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.